Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we continue through the Book of Romans and learn that the judgment of God will be completely righteous. You can join us by turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Why Judgment is Right. chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we've been working through this argument um, in in five main points. Today is the fourth, so we're going to read the whole section through here, and then we'll give some explanation to it. So please begin with me in verse 1 as we read. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, and unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. But the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Sovereign God, Lord, we come to you and beg for mercy once again. God, coming to church on Sunday can seem so ordinary. Many of us have done this hundreds upon hundreds of times. We're here with our church family and it can just seem so common and plain. But God, you show us that if we could only see what was happening in the heavenly realm, there is nothing ordinary about this. You draw us dust that you breathe life into to come and meet with you, the glorious living God, supreme over the cosmos, the one at whose name the demons tremble and earth and heaven flee from your presence. God, help us. You are infinitely powerful. We ask, oh God, please, 
Give us of this power this morning. Send your spirit that both in all the help that is needed in the preaching and in the hearing and then in the application and obedience to your word, oh God, please bring about great works, great effectiveness, Lord, that we never be the same because of what happens in this time that we have met with you and you have shown us yourself. Please, God, give mercy. We ask for you to protect the service, protect our minds and hearts, give us the ability to think deeply and to heed your word. Please, oh God, we ask these things through Christ. Amen. Member of our church, Served on jury duty recently. He served on one of those trials where it was just impossible to decipher what actually happened. Accusations were made, but there was no evidence clear one way or the other. And so at the end of the trial, the jury was hung. It was declared a mistrial. Those kinds of things happen often in this cursed and fallen world. And it kind of leaves that unsettling pit of your stomach kind of thought that one way or the other, some miscarriage of justice is happening in these kinds of situations. If the accused is innocent, well, his name is being drugged through the mud. Imagine if some random stranger accused you and began to speak of you to your friends, your neighbors, your family, and accuse you of, horrid and wicked things and everyone sort of looked at you with a little bit of that iffiness of did you or did you not kind of thing but then on the other hand if this man really did commit these crimes he's now walking walking around free no justice having come to him the victim is then left with this infuriating and haunting thought of the reality of no justice that's the way justice goes a lot of times in this cursed world. Actually, more times than we really, we really think about. This is a sin-saturated world. A common theme in the literature, the books, the plays, the movies and TV shows that we are interested in, a common theme is this vigilante justice. Justice that defies the rules of the land and takes justice into their own hands. And we see it enough that we know this is a, a common kind of theme. And whenever you're reading the book or watching it takes place, there's, there's a sense of satisfaction we get when the superhero or just common citizen takes justice for themselves. Why, why is that? Why is that such a common theme? Because we see the reality. The rich and the powerful get out of crimes and wiggle out of justice every single day and it infuriates us. There's a sense in which we have a groaning. We want someone higher than the law of man. We want someone to step in and bring the rich and smug and powerful to meet actual justice that's there. Well, there is such a one. It's the judge of the living and the dead. Part of the promise of scripture is that in the age to come, when Christ, the king of righteousness, rules, he will rule in righteousness. Scripture says righteousness will be the scepter 
of his kingdom. The age to come will be an age of only righteousness, meaning only what is right will be done. Never again will what is not right. Never again will it be running around in rebellion out there outside of the rule of law. King Jesus will bring all unrighteousness unto subjection beneath his feet. But that is most definitely not this age. This is the age marked by unrighteousness, meaning what is not right. But the promise of God is that at the conclusion of this age and the dawn of the next, God is going to bring the great settling of accounts, the great setting of right, the great vindicating of the victim, the great vengeance to the offenders, the great accounting to the one who knows all things, the judge of the living and the dead, the one from whose presence earth and heaven flee. Here's the way the text says it. God is going to judge in righteousness. But, but what does that mean exactly? Well, that's what we're considering this morning. Here's what we've seen thus far, uh, the, the argument that is uh, running through the text. Uh, so far, thus, we, we have seen that both to the non-religious man and to the religious man, they have been shown, you are not safe. You are not safe from the judgment and the wrath of God by yourself. Now, now on the side, let, let me say here, it is one of the major points of the gospel. It's one of the major uh, arguments in this book that we are going to come to, to you who are in Christ, to you that the evidence of your life, you are confident that you are in covenant. You have received the forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus Christ. To you who are in Christ, you are safe. You've been rescued out of condemnation. God wants you to feel safe. God wants you to have joy. God wants you to think of the future with hope and delight. You are safe from the wrath of God to come. But we're getting there first where the text goes is the first, the, the, the text speaks to the man who thinks he is safe because he is good. He thinks he is safe because of his deeds because of his works. And so first we're going to be show that shown every soul that has sinned against God, there is judgment to come on that soul, but God has made a way to be safe. Chapter three will then begin to lay out the way that we are brought to safety in him. But we, we secondly saw that the text just very plainly states the judgment of God is coming. Thirdly, last week we saw that it is stubbornness, it is hardness of heart to have an unrepentant heart, to turn to God looking for mercy. And today we're ready for number four, which is looking at the righteousness of God's judgment. If you have your outline on the back, yes, I messed up on that. I apologize. Forgot to move the bold point down to number four. This is where we are. The coming judgment of God will be righteous. You know, when you become a Christian, there's a whole new vocabulary you got to learn. Have you seen this? 
all kinds of words like justification and sanctification that you may not yet use in your daily language. Our goal is that one day you will use it in your daily language and words like righteousness. You may not use that in your everyday kind of conversation. So what does it mean when the scripture says that God's judgment will be righteous? Well, what it is saying, another way of just stating it is why God's judgment is right. Why it is a good thing that God is going to deal with evil. Why it is a right and good thing that he's going to bring a reckoning and accounting. Why it is a wonderful thing that angels and men are responsible to God. And so we're going to see that the fact that God judges is righteous. And then we're also going to see that the way that he judges is righteous. So under this fourth point, those will be the two parts of what we consider. Firstly, the fact that he judges is right, it is righteous, and then secondly, the way that he will judge is righteous. So let's begin with this first part here. We've seen the text say that God's judgment is coming, but here's just kind of a critical question that our hearts need to understand. To just ask the question, why? Why is God's judgment coming? Well, here's the quick answer, and then we're going to be unpacking it as we think through the different parts of it. The quickest answer is the reason why God's judgment is coming is it's right. This is what sin deserves. Look at verse 2 from the text again. So the text says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And the such things that are mentioned there is referencing back into chapter one when this listing of the various kinds of sins that humans engage in, particularly in verses 29 to 31, as a, as a long list of dozens of different ways that we have all participated in sins, what we're told is the judgment of God rightly is coming on those who practice such things. Look down at verse five at the language. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation. And then watch this phrase of the righteous judgment of God. Over and over again in the scripture, when the judgment is spoken of, it's not just said the judgment, but so many times this, this adjective is put to it, the righteous judgment of God. So why is it coming? Because it's right. Listen, friends, God is not overreacting to sin. It's, it's not that God, you know, he would be great. He's so wonderful, so loving. He would be great if it just wasn't for this part that he just so gets so bent out of shape. Maybe that's just his personality. No, that's not reality. This is not a personality issue with him. God does not have an unpleasant personality. He thinks of sin as a big deal. So, you know, I guess we got to play along if we want to be right with him. No, sin is horrendously awful. We struggle to see that it is. We struggle to see that it is awful for the same reason that a maggot doesn't think that the trash stinks. The maggot doesn't think the trash stinks because that's all he's ever known and he is conditioned to enjoy it. 
Friends, we, we haven't yet gotten to the part in Romans where we've looked at uh, the whole, the whole uh, concept of God teaches us of the sin nature. That from Adam, we have inherited a nature that has been corrupted from what we were meant to be. We were meant to have excellent, right, holy, beautiful thoughts. Sin and the curse, the fall has brought in a state where we are now corrupted and marred from that. That'll be coming in chapter three, five, and six on its way there. But one of the things that has come because of this sin nature is we're born with a condition where we actually receive a pleasure from the trash, from what is awful. We, we enjoy sin. And if we could see it from the perspective of the angels, they would see it even more repulsively as when we look at maggots in our trash and just think, how can those disgusting little creatures want to wiggle around and eat on this? The angels look at this and go, they were made in the image of God. What happened? And then the gospel is about bringing change where we begin to have new desires, new taste new wants, we begin to enjoy the things of God and begin to have a sour taste for the trash of sin. But here, here's why the judgment is coming. Sin is awful, but we struggle to see that it is awful. See, here's one of the simplest ways to sum up what the Bible is and what the Bible does. It's truth. The Bible is truth. The, the Bible is just telling you reality. But realities that we oftentimes have a hard time seeing or cannot see unless God showed us. Here's an example. There are angels in this room right now. You do not know that according to the flesh. You know that because scripture shows us that when believers gather together for worship, angels are in our midst. So what is God doing? God's just telling you, well, this is the reality. You just cannot see the reality. And over and over again, what the Bible does is it comes to all of those ways that we have wrong ideas about God, ourselves, and this world where we don't see rightly. The corrupted nature, the fallen nature has wrong ideas about God's character, about who we are, about what this life is about. And God sheds light and shows us, no, this is the reality. You think your life is about money? That's not why you were made. Look at this. You were made as an eternal creature. This is the truth. And the Bible sheds light and shows us all of these ways we have wrong ideas about God, ourselves, and the world. And here is one of the places we commonly misunderstand God, ourselves, and the world. We think of sin in light kinds of terms. We think of it lightly as weightless, when the reality is it is more awful than we have ever begun to consider. It is more repulsive to God. It is uglier. It is more terrible. It's more destructive than we have ever come to understand. It is so terrible and so unclean that God hates it and hates it with a passion that you have never felt for anything. God is disgusted with sin and hates it with a passion that will terrify us. But here's the point. His reaction is right. Our reaction is the one that is wrong. God's reaction to sin is perfect. 
See, in Scripture, we see God, the way that God responds to sin, the way that God reacts to sin, and we think thoughts like, have you ever thought this? Maybe whenever you were a brand new Christian reading through the Bible for the first time, have you ever thought, why is he making such a big deal out of this? Have you ever read that part where Uzzah stretches out his hand and touches the ark and thought, why is God going crazy over something so little? Or were Nadab and Abihu offer up the strange fire and they are struck down by God? Have you ever, have you ever asked, why is God making such a big deal? Here's the reason. It's a big deal. The problem is not God's reaction. The problem is our reaction. We have no comprehension for what it is to think that my defiled hands can stretch out and touch the holiness of God. We have no comprehension for how wretched our sin is. And so the response of faith is to see that God's reaction is perfect. See, whenever you read those things, you can have one of two reactions. You can first react and think that the problem was, is with God, which is always the world's reaction. Or we, the response of faith is to declare God is holy. And therefore, if he responds to sin in this way, then that is the right response And we have been seeing that God's response to sin is a terrifying outpouring of wrath and a hell that burns for eternity. Do you remember Jesus' zeal in the temple? When he stormed in and was flipping over tables and, and slinging a whip and we get the picture of fire in his eyes to cleanse the filth out. Why did he do that? He did it for the same reason that God struck down Uzzah. And he did it for the same reason that God struck down Nadab and Abihu. Scripture tells us that is God's zeal for his holiness, his fiery desire for righteousness. And that is good. It is pure. It is right. We've had this weird shift of ideology in Western culture, haven't we? There are an increasing number of people who believe that it is morally wrong of God to send people to hell. There are an increasing number of people who look at the temporary judgments that do come on the earth, like famine, like floods, like, like difficulties in cultures. They look at it and they are angry with God and accuse him of wrong as if he is morally wrong for sending judgments whatsoever. And therefore they refuse to believe it. You've even got a weird version of Christianity that wants to believe some parts of the Bible, but then deny the parts of judgment and wrath, which is completely unintelligent and inconsistent, the very source of Christianity, the scriptures, you're choosing to deny parts of it that's cutting off the limb from which you sit. But what we see is God explains why he has the reaction to sin that he does. Because it is right. Because it is right. Because this is the just response to him. The reality is God's hatred of evil is completely good. It is completely just, absolutely righteous. And in his righteous anger, every soul who does evil will be condemned unless you run to safety in Christ, which you receive 
by turning from your rebellion and trusting in Christ. There is an offer of mercy to shield you from the wrath that you are owed, but it is only received by faith in him. Let's continue to think through the rightness of God's judgment. Let me, let me give a series of illustrations. Let me give a series of three illustrations. First, suppose a man, and I do not bring up subjects like this just for dramatic effect, but suppose a man raped your daughter and the man was caught and you came to the day of trial. What do you want the judge to do? It's, it's, it's just very basic human desire. This is something that just is instilled in us. We want, we want justice, but, but make this connection. In Greek, the word just and righteous is the same word, actually. It's only in English that we make that distinction. When we want justice, we are wanting what is right, what is righteous to be done, the accounting, the settling of the account. We want it to be done. What if as the trial was beginning, you found out that the man who had harmed your little girl was the son of the judge? And by some technicality, the trial was allowed to continue on. What do you want the judge to do? You want that judge to overcome his natural inclinations to protect his son. You know that even though the judge has a love for his son, you want that judge to fulfill justice and righteousness. See, when we talk about that, when we think of those things, do you notice how often the world wants a relativist moral maker when it comes to our sins? But when it comes to sins done against us, crimes and wrong done against us, suddenly, suddenly we're legalist. Suddenly we want exactness. We want the letter of the law to be fulfilled. We may make excuses and come up for all these reasons about why my, this thing that the Bible says is my sin. Well, I don't really think it's even a sin. I'm sure Paul was just a chauvinist pig whenever he talked about those things or whatever kinds of explanations. I'm sure mine is okay. But when wrong is done against me, suddenly I want the letter of the law. What that is showing, friends, when wrong done against us desires for justice, we are showing deep down when we get honest, we know that righteousness is good and we know that what is right is ultimately going to be demanded of everyone. And friends, we have to see the rightness of God in doing this. Let me submit to you that the judgment of God is not something to despise. It's unintelligent and immoral to despise the judgment and wrath of God. It's a good thing that he is righteous. This is part of his character. This is something to worship him for. This is something to rejoice in like every other part of his character. And do you not find a sense of comfort, a sense of vindication, a sense of a satisfying of some itch that you have inside of you that you know all things are supposed to be set right. God's judgment is the way this is going to happen. And friends, throughout history, countless victims on earth have never seen justice. Kings and dictators and presidents have lived in splendor yet starved their citizens to misery and death. 
Wicked men have raped women, have executed masses only for the pleasure of watching them die and have never seen one ounce of justice for their crimes while they were on earth. How can you not see the goodness of God in addressing that? How can you not see the goodness of God coming to the aid of the, of the oppressed, vindicating and standing behind the helpless who have been trodden upon by the wicked? How can you not see the goodness of God being the huckleberry that the wicked men who have trampled others have never met in their lives, the one they are responsible to? And a question to pose to unbelievers is, do you really think that the story of this world is just that these people will get away with it? Do you really think that the story of this world is people harm others, there's no retribution, the end? Don't you have a sense of groaning inside of you for the setting of all things to right? Of course we do, and you're lying if you claim you don't. God's justice and God's coming right judgment is something to worship him for. Did you know that scripture shows that when God finally executes that last act of wrath, that his people will worship him for it? That we won't go, ooh, you know, I love God, but I wish he hadn't done that. That's the way oftentimes people act about this part of God's character. Even sometimes thinking things like, well, I guess I gotta believe it, but I don't like it. This is not something to despise. There could be a wicked way we took pleasure in these kinds of things in a pharisaical, judgmental, and sadistic kind of way. But that is not the same as understanding and seeing the goodness of God in the setting of all things right. We will, on the last day, sing worship unto God and give him glory for the judgment and wrath on the wicked. We worship God for the rightness of it, but listen... At the same time in humility, recognizing our own guilt. And while we worship God for displaying his wrath, we will recognize I rightly deserve to be there among them. And we will sing even more heartily the song of the redeemed that throughout eternity we will herald again and again, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Imagine how heartily we will sing on that day when we visibly see what I deserved and what Jesus took in my place. There will not be an arrogant pleasure in those things. There will be a humble, deeply grateful worship of God for the sacrifice of Christ on that day. In ancient Rome, a man named Brutus the Elder had two sons who were caught conspiring to overthrow the government. And the crime of treason carried a sentence of death. And at the trial, the two boys pleaded with their father. They appealed to him in the most heartfelt of ways. They poured out their love to him. They, they pledged to be good from now on. All of these kinds of ways pleaded for mercy. And the people wondered, what would he do? Will he spare them? Will he protect them? They're his sons. Well, he sentenced them to death as the law demanded, as is right. Now, let me ask you this question. Could this man, could he have spared his sons? 
And the answer is yes. He could have subverted justice. He could have done what is unjust, immoral, could have done what is not right. He had the power to spare his sons, but he was not willing to do what is unrighteous. And friends, similarly, God God does have a love and a care for every soul. Did you know that the Bible says that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked? Did you know that 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 God shows that he has a care for every soul? He has a desire that all would come to repentance. So there is a care that is there, but he is not willing to subvert justice and do what is unrighteous. Friends, to do what is unrighteous would be for God to do what is contrary to his character. Now listen, there's not some authority higher than God. God doesn't have some set of rules that he has to follow. No, he's the lawgiver. He's the one who is the giver of all laws and all things flow from him, but he is righteous and holy. For him to subvert justice would be to oppose who he is. There's no one higher than him, but in his character, he will not do what is a lie. He will not do what is dishonest. He will not break integrity with his own character to to do what is unrighteous. He always does what is righteous. And this is part of his glory. You and I need to be very grateful that the one who has all power, all authority is also very good. Imagine the horrors of living in a universe with a being who was all powerful, had all authority, and was not good. Praise God, he is all powerful and all good. And he is unwilling, unwilling to break holiness and his character. Here's the last illustration that I think will help us in understanding the gospel. There's also the true story of a tribe, a native tribe where a string of thefts were occurring in the community. And so the chief addressed the tribe and he spoke to everyone and said, whoever the thief is, if you'll come forward right now and take your punishment, I will only give you 10 lashes. But you listen to me. For every day that you do not step forward, I'm going to increase the number of lashes. Well, day after day passed and no one stepped forward and the crimes continued. And so finally, the lashes reached the number 40. And then it was discovered that the thief was the mother of the chief. And so everyone wondered, what will he do? Will he spare her? Will he do what is right? Well, he sentenced his mother to the lashes. But as the first lash was about to be lowered, he covered his mother's back with his own and received the lashes onto himself. So follow the reasoning here. He had the power to spare his mother, but was unwilling to subvert justice, unwilling to do what is unrighteous. So he carried out the justice, carried out the punishment, but in love, he took the wrath on himself. But it is so critical that we understand this. He did not have to. He was under no obligation. He did not owe this to his mother. He could have not done that act of grace and he would have still been completely righteous. But in love, he offered himself. And friends, the connection to the gospel here is just so beautiful. 
God is unwilling to subvert justice. God is unwilling to do what is unrighteous. And so the just punishment for every single crime, every single sin from all of history is going to be dealt with in some way. It will either be that you reject Christ and you receive the wrath on yourself. But for those who are in Christ, it is though Christ draped himself over us and took the lashes of God's wrath onto him so that you and I can be spared. That is the beauty of the gospel. And friends, one of the major points in the book of Romans is for us to see and rejoice in the fact that God saves sinners, but he does not defile justice in doing it. God has saved us, but he has not done it as a wicked being. God saves us, but he has done it in righteousness. He is righteous and the one who makes righteous, just and the justifier. And God wants us to see this and God wants us to rejoice and worship him for it. He wants us to see that he has done it in a way that is right. There there are many who want to say weird kinds of things and argue that if if God really is nice, then hell can't exist. He's just going to let everybody in. But recognize this, God is under no obligation to save even one. God could have executed the sentence of justice on this earth and every human die and he would have remained completely good. God in history could have chosen to only save one and he would have been merciful. God has chosen to save a host. God has chosen to save a multitude that Revelation describes as a number that no one can count. We can't count that high a people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And God could have chosen that the way you receive this benefit of Christ taking your wrath for you, he could have made that way of you receiving it any way that he wanted to. He could have made it that you have to give a certain amount of money to the poor in your lifetime. Once you reach that, you know, $50,000, you reach that number, bam, you now have eternal life. He could have made it any way he wanted to. The way that he chose is so genius. Repentance and faith. Repentance would be like the mother of the chief vowing to never continue those crimes. I will turn to the way of what is right. And faith is that most basic response to God of trusting him. This is how God has made the way that you receive the benefits of Christ taking the wrath for sins. All right, so all of that has been to say that the fact that God is going to judge is right. And then secondly, a quicker point, the way that God judges will be right. Text says several things along this way. Let's talk about several parts with this. First, um, look at verse 16 where it says that God is going to judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. It is a word of comfort and a word of warning that God is the knower of all deeds. God is the seer of all thoughts. God is the hearer of all whispers. Jesus said that what was said in the dark will be shouted for all to hear. Every cup of cold water given in his name will be remembered on the day of judgment. Every careless word spoken will be brought up at the judgment. Here's something that we need to see about the judgment. It is no quick summarization. 
It is no blanketed little overview. Good job. Bad job. It's detailed. Thoughts. Intentions are brought before God on that day. What you have done publicly will be made known to the masses of history. And what you have done in the dark will be brought into the light. That's meant to be a word of warning. It's meant to be a word that brings caution to the Christian. You live before the eyes of God. You have never done a truly secret deed. You've never even been able to hide it from the angels, let alone God. Even the deepest recesses of your thoughts that are even unclear to you are as plain to God as the hand in front of your face. God will judge the secrets on that day. But let me also apply this. Now, he's not yet to the part where he's bringing comfort to the Christian. I feel if we go seven years before we get to the comfort to the Christian, you may bail out on me before we get there. A word of comfort to the Christian is that this is not only meant to be a warning, it is meant to be a word of encouragement. It's meant to be a source of joy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached that we are to do good deeds in such a way that we're not noticed by men. Remember, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And Jesus says, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Your loving father in heaven has joy over the thoughts of rewarding you, Christian. What a happy truth. He's not, he's not up in heaven hoping you'll mess up and waiting with the lashes. That's, that's the way legalism presents God. That's not the true character of God. God has sent us his Holy Spirit. And one of the main major roles and ministries of the Holy Spirit to us is that he is an encourager on to good deeds. Like the coach on the sideline that's cheering, go, telling us go harder. Yes, but not with the tone of a critic. With the tone of love and encouragement. All of your secret good works will be rewarded. There's a statement from scripture that says that some people's sins go on ahead of them to the judgment and some people's follow after, meaning some sins are so well known that the person has a reputation amongst men even before they come to the judgment, but for others, it will be discovered later. But the same is true for good deeds. I attended a funeral yesterday, um, a meaningful funeral of the most Christ-like and godly human I've ever encountered on the earth thus far. I don't say that in the wake of just sentimentalism. I thought that before he passed. He was a friend of mine who passed away on Monday. At this funeral, there were, I'm estimating, more than a thousand people in attendance. I've never been to a funeral that large before. And it was so joyous. Person after person stood and recounted this man's faithfulness to the gospel. Decades upon decades of, of service, of sharing the gospel, of saving marriages and working for the, the oppressed and just time after time, all of these good works. It was a beautiful thing. But listen, not everyone's good deeds are as publicly known. The Christians in the prison camps of North Korea, the Christians in the prison 
in China that have been there so long, no one on the outside remembers their name, and yet they are ministering on the inside. God has placed them in that location to be an agent of the gospel, and they are leading souls to Christ from the inside. Nobody knows of their deeds, but they will be rewarded. Their deeds will follow them and their loving father in heaven has joy over rewarding them. And you listen to me, this is one of the big points of the gospel you have got to see and feel. It will be worth it. They will rejoice. They will not come to the day of judgment, receive their rewards and think to God, I'm not sure that it was worth it. All of that difficulty, they will rejoice. God rewards his people in a way that brings eternal joy. God has joy in rewarding you, his sons and daughters. Well, secondly, not only is God aware of the secrets of men, he will judge each soul. The text tells us according to our deeds. Look at verse six. This theme is a, is a repeated theme in scripture who will render to each person according to his deeds. The next three, four verses there go on to describe that in detail. And this goes for the believer and the unbeliever. Flip over to Matthew chapter 16 with me, if you will. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Jump to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, this passage has so much rich theology in it, not even expanding beyond even the judgment. Matthew 25, verse 31, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. You see the way that the passage rolls through there. Here is one of the points I want to make with that. Do you notice that Jesus is bringing up works? This has created some questions sometimes because sometimes Christians have asked, well, pastor, I thought we're saved by faith. Why is he talking about works here? Because we might expect that when Jesus says, come you who are blessed of my father for you were saved. You turned to Christ, but that's not what he references. He references works, deeds. So how does this work? Well, here's the reality. It needs a whole book with it that's coming later on, especially in chapter six of Romans. But here's the reality, Christian. You are justified, made right with God by faith. You are saved by faith. But the scripture is clear. You are judged by works. This is a repeated thing that comes up many, many times. The whole counsel of scripture is showing you are saved by faith, but your works are part of the process of evaluation in your entrance into the kingdom. Now, I know that may cause some 
upsetting or confusing kinds of thoughts in you. All I can say is, <laughs> next decade, keep working this stuff out. This is what it means to study the scripture. Many times in the Bible, one truth is presented and it is only rightly understood next to another truth or maybe five other truths. And I'll bet you have heard a version of the gospel where someone led you to believe that all uh, only talked about, say, the magic words and you're saved. But scripture shows these numerous truths together. You are made, with right, made right with God in an instant. At the moment of regeneration, the moment of your conversion. But scripture also goes on to say a faith that does not work is a dead faith. Your life of good deeds is evidence of your submission to Christ. And make no mistake about it, your works are evaluated as part of the process of your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. To quote John MacArthur, salvation is not by works, but it will assuredly produce works. And then this next passage, I think will add a little bit of help to that. Turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, find verse 11. Here we have a scene of the end. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you notice the part about the books there? There's a book and then set of books, books plural. The book of life, which where the names of the redeemed, the people of God are written. God does not just see you as a blur. Your name is written. Jesus died for you personally. And two times in the book of Revelation before this, it is beautiful. We are told these names have been written from the foundation of the world. Once again, emphasizing the sovereignty of God in our salvation. But then there is the second set of books in which our deeds are recorded. Does that help us understand the connection between salvation and works? There are two separate books here. But our works are evaluated as evidence of our faith. Jesus will show my people are the ones who lived unto righteousness. But then it says we're, we're judged by our deeds. Let me clear this up. In saying that, it does not mean that only what we do outwardly is judged as though our inward thoughts and intentions are not judged. No, several places in scripture refer to the fact that God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What is meant by this is that God is not going to judge according to the criteria that so often people think that he will. Next week, we will see that God is not going to judge you based on the family you came from or the nation that you were a part of. No, you are judged based on what you have done, the fruit, the output of your life. It is what you have personally done. 
what so many other places in Scripture say much more about the judgment I had wanted to roll through every place, and then I saw that was absurd. 1 Corinthians 3 shows that we will be judged by the quality of our works. Matthew chapter 24 in the parable of the talents shows that we not only are to just roll through life and try to stay out of trouble, we're called to gospel work, kingdom work. We're going to be judged on our service and the quality of our service. In Galatians 6, there's a principle that's stated. It's applied to one particular thing. It's applied to giving generosity to the work of the kingdom, but it's a general principle about the judgment. It says this, let me read Galatians 6, beginning in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And boy, when we talk about the judgment, that's a statement that needs to be said because so often our hearts can come up with all of these excuses and justifications for why. Why for me, it's gonna work out different. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, This he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And then here's the application, and I think it is beautiful. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Christian, do not grow weary. Keep Keep the gospel before your eyes every single day. And one of the truths of the gospel is the reminder. Tomorrow, all of my deeds that I do, I will answer for. How do you want to live tomorrow? Let us not grow weary. And you who are not yet a Christian, you who have not yet come to God and you have not yet acknowledged your need, The judgment of God is coming on all sin. You have sinned. In love, God is willing to cover your back from the wrath that you deserve. But before you get that benefit, you must come to him in the way that he says and not the way you devise in your own mind. He says you must believe on his son to turn from your rebellion and trust in Christ. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Why Judgment is Right. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.